Welcome to Interpod, a podcast by Interpride where the world comes together for the LGBTQIA community. I'm Michelle Miao, your host. Happy New Year, happy 2022. While we're all still facing challenges from a global pandemic, sharing the resilience and strength of our communities can uplift us to look forward to healing and getting through some of our toughest moments. In this episode, we'll focus on some of those big wins of our movement, as well as hear how we, our own community, can come together to take care of one another during this pandemic. Late last year, Canada passed legislation making conversion therapy illegal, the damaging and abusive practice of changing one's sexual orientation or gender identity. Prime Minister Justin Trudeau tweeted, It's official. Our government's legislation banning the despicable and degrading practice of conversion therapy has received royal assent, meaning it is now law. LGBTQ2 Canadians will always stand up for you and your rights. Here to talk about their own personal experiences with conversion therapy is activist and advocate Mike Smith. Hi, my name is Mike Smith. I use they, them pronouns. I am coming from Barrie, Ontario, Canada, which is just north of Toronto. Um, I am a survivor of conversion therapy, and I have been involved in this movement since 2014. I came out when I was 18 years old as I was preparing to go on my mission as Elder Smith, uh, just like the musical. <laughs> um, I, When I came out to my parents, I told them that they didn't need to worry about anything because I was going to go fix myself. Um, and that was the, the first time that I was involved in, in formal conversion therapy. Um, but the ways that we're using, um, like the sojice term now, um, like the Mormon culture and Mormon doctrine is completely full and with so many different types of change efforts and sexual, like sexuality deterrent efforts in general. Um, but my first formal introduction to conversion therapy was when I was 18. Um, it was offered by a psychologist uh, working out of an institution called LDS Family Services, which is a branch of the Mormon Church. Um, from there, um, I went on my mission with the promise that if I stayed faithful uh, and I really focused on my conversion uh, to the church, uh, that I would you know, it result in a miracle and I'd be straight one day. And that's, that's honestly what my goal was because I, the shame and the, the fear of being, um, gay or queer. And I wasn't even thinking about gender at this point, um, was just so terrifying. Um, and so I did everything that I could to change myself because that was just the, um, the world that I was in. Um, but I believed in it and I wanted to believe in it because it was my hope that the messages that they were saying about like how you can be your authentic self as a straight person were the ways that I was going to be happy. I believed in that so, so deeply. I was working with a psychiatrist for two reasons. So one was to start treating the anxiety that was getting really, really bad um, and the depression that was obviously present. So like he was helping me through that, but at the same time he like he was trying to address some of the concerns, and he thought the concerns were oh you're gay, like okay we can fix that, and from what I remember and what he told me it would be a cocktail of antidepressants, and we know that antidepressants um, can have uh, like like a decrease of sex drive for some folks, or just take away um, sexual desire in general. Um, and so that was, that was offered to me as a solution. 
it felt terrible. And even though like I would be, or I was accepting very terrible things and just owning all the things that they were telling me, I knew that that was a, a step way too far. And like, I'm glad I stopped myself because who knows what that would, that would have done. And looking at it now, like they were, they would have taken away my humanity or they would have preferred to take away my humanity than for me to, to live out my, my true life, which is, that's the hardest part. Like they wanted to, to take something away from me. And that's the violation that I really felt from that. What were some of the, I guess, therapies that specifically focused on making you straight, for example? Like, what were they doing that act, that that <laughs> that would maybe they're rationalizing or they were rationalizing in their minds that you know this is going to make you straight? Sure, and let's let's just start there at the the rationalizing part. Like, all of this is very pseudoscientific. It looks like it's scientific, um, like coming or basing their approaches based off scientific theories that work in some situations, not talking about sexual orientation or gender, but, you know, like classical conditioning, um, like that's, that's a theory that really goes into what conversion therapy is all about. Um, so they, so first off, the thing to know is like these things look like they're legitimate, and that's kind of what pulls people into these situations. <laughs> um, so what kind of therapies uh, were they included? Um, they describe something called psychodramatic therapy. This is an this is a real intervention that's used uh, for psychotherapeutic purposes. Um, but in this case, what they wanted to do was to relive some of your traumatic experiences as we were kind of forming our ideas of what gender is supposed to look like. And so for many people, this was instances with their father, um, with their brothers, um, for other older adult men. But for me, like, because I have a great relationship with my dad, and I always have <laughs> very positive relationships with my fathers, I couldn't really fit into that situation. So they, they forced me into a situation with the bullies that I had in school. And that was the, the experience that I relived with them, which didn't make any sense, of course. But for some people, like, I, I witnessed a guy, you know, pretend to talk to his dead father, for instance. So someone, like, laid down on the floor, they covered this body with a sheet, and this person talked to this body as if it was his dead father, and he sobbed the entire time, thinking about that, like, he... I've never heard someone cry like that, and I've never heard someone respond in a, such a such a way. It wasn't helpful. It was reliving trauma. Um, I know, um, like a shout out to our friend of mine, a good friend of mine, Matt Ashcroft, who went through a similar or went through the same program I did, just a year apart, and he like witnessed this psychodramatic therapy or therapeutic intervention with people like reliving a rape situation. And like these things are extreme and they have no limits to what they're willing to do in the name of making people straight. And it's just absolutely ridiculous. Um, so like those sort of like reliving things, but also just like reenacting um, how you should have responded in some situations. And so like this is where like my first like direct experience with like confronting my my maladaptive or destructive gender tendencies Um so like I think of myself as a feminine person in some senses and I brought that into the therapeutic space with a therapeutic space um, and so they put me in the middle of a circle and as I was I told them some of the names that people used to call me so like fag, wuss, um, you know all, all the terrible names that were called uh, or that feminine um, 
AMAD folks are called. Um, and so as they were shouting these names at me, they were throwing like pieces of, of, of clothing or other items that like usually are associated with womanhood. So bras, thongs, pads, or feminine hygiene pads, um, or sorry, menstruation pads. Um, um, even like a high heel. And my job was apparently to climb up this ladder and overcome all of that. Um, but instead it was just like reinforcing like everything that I hated about myself for being feminine. Um, and realizing that like, oh, like you should hate yourself because you're feminine. There's not like you, you can't be happy with yourself until you're a masculine. That's what that taught me essentially. And it took a long time for me to really overcome that and eventually come out because so much shame was building up and I just couldn't imagine myself accepting that I was feminine. Talk to us about, you know, that moment that you were like, this is wrong. I'm out. I'm not doing this. Leaving that camp. I thought I would be a new person. I, I felt like this is, this is the solution. I'm going to be fixed. I just need to adhere to this program. I need to start meeting with one of their life coaches and pay them a shit ton of money and just adhere to that and go to these, these campouts with other guys and just do all the things that they wanted to do. And um, I started hanging out with more people who came from this camp or journey into manhood. Um, and I saw what I could perceive as like no change happening. So these campouts that guys would go to, it just became a big orgy. Or guys that I would meet up with and they would just talk about how miserable they are and how they haven't been able to see the changes that they were hoping for. So like that was some evidence for me. I'm just like, well, why isn't this working? And then eventually like all of this was just leading towards more and more suicide ideation. And um, I guess, this is a little bit sensitive information, but talking about suicidality, but when you're feeling that way, or at least when it felt like that for me, it was just, it felt like I was being sucked into this deep pit. Um, and like, I became very, very scared that I would end my life or I would hurt myself because I became more and more inclined to like want to do that. That's what that felt like. Um, and that's where the panic came from. And I remember just crying in my room one day and my roommate at the time came in and he was like, you know, like what's going on? We were started talking about it and I told him everything. And it was at that point, he's just like, leave the church. Stop what you're doing. It's not working. <laughs> there, your life is more important than fitting into this, this world. And so he challenged me to just try living gay to see what it's like what would happen? And that's, that's what pulled me out of it. And that's what committed me to stop and, and start joining other folks who have been through similar things and, um, to share my story over and over again, as much as I have been since 2014, I needed someone to pull me out. Um, but until like, until I had that person, like I was accepting most of the things that were happening and just saying like, this is all part of the process. It's me demonstrating faith that I'm willing to do this. Um, but faith doesn't quite work like that. So in Canada, um, our work is not done and it needs to be emphasized that we have so much more to do um, because we have communities that are broken and people who need 
uh, significant amounts of support for to to recover from these things that happen to them. Um, in Canada, there have been a number of studies that that look into these experiences. Um, but now we need to move forward. We need to take this data. We need to figure out what works in terms of how to support people um, to reframe their cognition, to um, to explore healthy relationships, to re to pr repair or even just to say goodbye to their family and the expectations that uh, family things have uh, in their life. Um, even like bringing into the conversation is just like what's going on with conversion therapy support or survivors with substance use and how can we support those folks who are experiencing um, like the ongoing distress of these interventions um, and like coping with substances. Um, there's uh, there's so many questions here and there's so much work that needs to continue happening and so we need the, the support of the public to continue to urge governments uh, at each level to, to continue to support survivors. Um, if you are going through, you mean anyone who's listening or participating in any, uh, any way, um, are looking for support, um, look for peer support groups. And yeah, connect with people who have similar experiences. Um, collectively, we can do so much more than if we're struggling by ourselves. So that would be a, a recommendation that I make. It's like, it, it's after all these years and after all the therapy I paid for, whew, um, it still hurts and it still affects me. Um, and it didn't have to happen. And I think we need to start putting more responsibility on religious institutions um, and not just looking at this from like, these are like terrible secret organizations that are doing this to people. It's like, no, like this starts in congregations. Um, and the threat that we have now in Canada is that congregations are still sending folks over the border to New York, to Pennsylvania, to, um, you know, well, that's for us in Ontario, um, to these camps and to these, these programs that traumatize people. And we need to become aware of what these look like. We need to be aware of what these underground services look like because they still happen in Canada um, and support each other. Um, as we are trying to really shut this down. Thank you, Mike. Thank you for sharing your personal story. And here to tell us what this means, what the ban of conversion therapy means in Canada, is Nicholas Schiavo. So my name is Nicholas Schiavo. Uh, my pronouns are he, him, uh, and I am the founder of No Conversion Canada, a national nonprofit organization uh, that works to end conversion practices and support survivors. When we talk about the history of conversion therapy or, or conversion practices or SOJICE, I think really you, you come to the quick realization that it's a history of homophobia, transphobia, biphobia. Um, you know, one of the analogies I like to use is if homophobia um, or queerphobia is this kind of like ball of fire, uh, conversion therapy is like um, a lens that just focuses that light and that heat on someone. Um, so it is a byproduct, you know, of that systemic discrimination. When we talk about it in the Canadian context, um, we don't have an exact date as to when, you know, conversion therapy, quote unquote, started. Um, but from what we understand, this was by and large, um, you know, something that was brought in from the United States, uh, likely around the 1950s. And earlier, you know, 
in that century, I think the the um, model of conversion therapy was one that was more medicalized, um, and it was seen as this kind of disorder, right? This disease, this this illness that you had to cure, you had to fix. Um, but as you progress in the century, you get into the 70s and 80s, you see it start to change a little bit, and that's where I think more of that kind of faith based conversion therapy really starts emerging. Um, and this is the idea of you know you being possessed, um, you know, in order to be you know, faithful to God or to your faith, you need to to pray and repent, uh, pray the gay away. So the history is quite fraught. Um, but I think one of the things uh, that's really important to acknowledge in this movement is that it's been many decades that survivors themselves have been fighting for, you know, this victory that we just recently achieved. Uh, it's been many decades where survivors have been speaking out. Uh, they've been sharing their their experiences. And they've been calling for action. I think largely those calls have gone unanswered. Um, and so I am really happy to see, you know, the, the awareness being brought to this issue. Uh, and then also the action, of course, um, because you know what, it's been way too long that, that folks who have been abused and tortured and suffered um, have been shunned in terms of their voices, in terms of their stories. So it's been, um, I think it's been a very, emotional kind of roller coaster. Um, but at least if there's a positive that's come out of it, it's that we have these stories being told finally, uh, and we have some action to show for it. You know, one of the questions you get particularly from elected officials is how prevalent is this issue? Um, one of the challenges with that question is that this is inherently something that happens in the shadows. It happens in the darkness often. Um, I think a lot of practitioners of these practices have gotten smarter in terms of changing the language, uh, changing the way they advertise. So it's rare that you'll see someone come out and say, we do conversion therapy. Um, but that doesn't mean that it's that it's stopped. It doesn't mean that it's not happening. Um, one of the organizations that has been really profound in this movement is the Community-Based Research Center. So CBRC is uh, an organization based out in the west coast of Canada in BC, um, and they put out um, a Sex Now survey every couple of years, I believe. Um, and so the most recent one uh, that we have data from was from 2019, and it found that one in 10 um, gay, bi, trans, two-spirit, and queer Canadians uh, have experienced conversion therapy. So that's 10%. Um, and again, you know, 10% of LGBTQ2 Canadians in and of itself is probably an underestimate considering, you know, this survey itself doesn't account for queer women. But I think beyond that, <clears throat> there's a lot of stigma. There's a lot of pain. There's a lot of trauma in talking about these, these practices. And a lot of people just want to kind of never revisit that. They never want to go back to that. We, um, we kind of use a multi-layered approach in terms of pushing for bans. So we, we look for bans at the federal level, at the provincial level, and at the municipal level, so in cities as well. And before the federal government, you know, stepped into this, this arena and, and did anything, you had cities and provinces who were filling that gap. Um, because of our legal and, and political system, it's important for, for all jurisdictions to do their part. But what we saw was as of 2015, you had provinces like Ontario who had come out with their own bans um, against, you know, physician-based or health-based, quote-unquote, uh, conversion therapy. You also had cities like Vancouver, you know, huge uh, global cities uh, who had started to implement their own municipal bylaws. And that specific bylaw in Vancouver, I see as a turning point. Um, that was really instituted by a gentleman named Peter Guidich. Peter Guidich 
Heidich is a pioneer in this movement. He is a survivor. He is very open about his story. He is an author. And it was Peter and I think his story and his experience that galvanized that first municipal ban in 2018. And it was around this time that conversations were happening at the federal level with the federal government. Um, and unfortunately, the first time it really got to the government's desk was through a, a petition. And the response we got was really um, frustrating. Essentially what they said was, you know, we're not gonna touch this issue. This is a provincial issue. Um, this is a healthcare issue and, and we don't support it, but um, you know, we can't do anything about it. Uh, and fast forward, you know, maybe six months and we have a federal election and all of a sudden it seems to be a priority. So of course, you know, like so many issues in our community, there's politics involved, which is uh, always frustrating. Uh, just the same, I was very happy to see it become an issue because all of a sudden it raised the public consciousness of conversion practices. Um, and a lot of those survivor stories kept kind of flowing. There was more research, there was more peer reviewed, um, you know, articles being shared. And, you know, by the time it was finally banned, every major party in the country supported a ban in, in some form uh, or another. So it's, you know, it's been a very rocky road and I don't think it's been linear or, or perfect, but the change we've seen since 2018 to, to now in 2022 has been pretty incredible. We, we still have our issues like every country here in Canada, um, particularly when it comes to queer uh, homeless youth, uh, when it comes to accessing, you know, um, gender affirming healthcare, when it comes to, you know, hate crimes, we, we still have a lot of work to go. And um, there isn't complete consensus when it comes to the issues that our community advocates for. But at the same time, I think all Canadians would acknowledge we are incredibly lucky. Uh, we are incredibly lucky to live in a country that is as open uh, and as free and as diverse uh, as Canada is. And I myself am very proud to see my elected officials stand up for the LGBTQ2 community. Um, I think it sends a very, very powerful message, uh, particularly when you have the Prime Minister standing up in the House of Commons, um, you know, talking about our community. It signals that that we are a priority as all Canadians should be. It signals that you know you are valid, you have a place here, uh, that Canada belongs to you just as much as anyone else. Um, and that's something that I think you know we all need to be very grateful for because when we talk about it in a global context, you know, there's not a lot of countries where the same can be said. Uh, we know that there's between 65 and 75 countries that criminalize uh, being queer. Uh, we know that, you know, the amount of countries where you can adopt is, is embarrassingly, embarrassingly low, um, you know, equal marriage, again, very low. And so, yeah, there's, there's definitely, I think, a hope that comes with that, that we are going to continue to move forward and make progress and, and hopefully just make our communities a little bit safer. I would say, you know, first off, please know that you belong to a global community that stands with you. Um, and that is side by side with you, even if we can't be there physically. And, you know, however difficult or tumultuous that journey may be uh, to ban conversion therapy or to achieve those, those wins for LGBTQ folks, um, it's worthwhile and you stand on the shoulders of giants. You know, we, we talked about um, Stonewall and, and how so much of this began. Um, I think the, one of the biggest lessons or, or pieces of advice I would give is to build coalitions, find people who may be involved in that struggle or a struggle that is adjacent to yours, um, open up your communities and, and try to work with people who are also 
looking to fight for justice and freedom and fairness and safety. Um, because once you start, you know, coming together, it's it's much harder to be ignored. And I think there's strength in numbers. So I'm optimistic for for so many other countries too. That was Jeremy Duche with Honor Song. Jeremy is an indigenous Wulistoic singer from Canada. Another big success story is from Japan. For the first time in history, a Japanese court last year ruled that the government's failure to allow same-sex marriages is violating Article 14 of the Constitution, which ensures the right to equality. To talk to us about the progress for marriage equality in Japan is filmmaker Asako Hanafsa. So my name is Asako Hanafsa. I go by she, her pronouns. I'm currently working for Hiroshima Home TV, one of the local TV stations in Japan as a reporter and director. Technically, I'm a staff writer of a newspaper but I was assigned to work for a TV station under our broadcasting network since last April. I've been covering LGBTQ plus communities, especially in Osaka as a newspaper reporter. And now as a TV director, I'm creating short films featuring queer people in Hiroshima. One of my films, which was aired last month, was telling a story about a female couple living in a rural city. In Japan, Marriage equality has not yet been achieved. Same-sex marriage hasn't been legalized. But since 2019, there are five lawsuits going on, which over 10 same-sex couples filed to seek the right to get married for the first time ever. Actually, last year, March 2021, the Sapporo District Code made a landmark decision which ruled that the government's denial to recognize same-sex marriage is unconstitutional. However, the judge didn't admit the plaintiff's claim that the diet members should take an action to legalize same-sex marriage. In other words, the judge dismissed the responsibility of the diet to draft a new law or amend the existing laws to legalize same-sex marriage. The beginning of the momentum was back to 2015, when Shibuya Ward in Tokyo started to issue certificates for same-sex couples to recognize their partnerships. The certificate is not the same as legal marriage, but still a big change because public institution like a local municipality took an action to recognize that the same-sex couples are living in the same society. 
And as of last March 2021, more than 100 municipalities have already started issuing those certificates. And more than 1,700 same-sex couples across Japan have registered and received those certificates. Back to five years ago, the local governments issuing the certificates were only six. So you can feel how rapid the increase of the numbers. Same-sex couples in Japan became more visible than the past, but still not everyone came out. Some of them are just living together, pretending as friends or roommates or even siblings. If you live in an area where the local government issues the partnership certificate, you can register to get one, but not all local governments do. Also, even if your government does, but if it's a small town and you and your partner are not out to the public, you have a risk to end up being outed when you meet the officers at the municipal office for the registration, because the officer could be your friend at school or your parent's friend in a small town. And again, those partnership certificates are not the same as legal marriage. So you can write your signature to an agreement forms for your partner's surgery at the hospital. And you can get couple discounts for mobile phone bills, but you cannot inherit properties like houses or rooms, which you and your partner have been living for a long time. And you cannot receive tax reductions as a spouse either. There are countless things you cannot do to protect you and your partner's lives. I think, of course, the first court decision in Sapporo District Court was a big milestone, but it's halfway through marriage equality. But I can see a lot of success in terms of community building. Through the marriage equality movement, queer communities in Japan have been growing bigger and bigger. For example, Pride House Tokyo, a kind of information center and community space, was opened in 2019. And in many cities in Japan, we can now see pride parades, not only big cities like Tokyo and Osaka, but also in small cities. Also, because of the rapid increase of local partnership certificates, more and more local municipalities are now advocating for awareness for diversity. For example, in Human Rights Week in early December, many municipalities have conferences or talks about LGBTQ plus communities. I can feel changes are happening little by little. So lawyers of the lawsuits for marriage equality are trying to win the cases. To do that, raising public awareness are really important. While Japanese government didn't admit the fact that refusal of same-sex marriage was unconstitutional, even after the landmark court decision, certain numbers of the diet members are supportive to legalize same-sex marriage. That's because of community efforts, meaning that many people in LGBTQ plus communities across Japan have raised their voices to the public, collected petition signatures, donated to those lawyers fighting for marriage equality. Public attention can make changes happen. I, as a person working for media, 
I continue to tell stories about queer people in Japan, especially now in Hiroshima. So what I truly believe is that visibility matters to let people know that same-sex couples are existing in our society and helping always there. Some people living in rural areas like here in Hiroshima sometimes say, oh, I've never seen gay people or same-sex couples, or I don't know any LGBTQ persons around me, but that's not the case. Queer people having always there, always in your own communities. As a newspaper reporter, I've written many stories of LGBTQ people without the photos of their faces and their real names. As media, we can do that. And sometimes we need to do that to protect people's safety and privacy. But I think visibility makes people aware, take actions, and then changes happen. That was more music from Jeremy Duche. As we're organizing our Pride celebrations this year, please support the work of musicians from our own community, the LGBTQIA plus two community. Our next speakers are Anjali Rimi, the founder of Parivar Bay Area, an organization set out to support the South Asian transgender community in India during the pandemic. Anjali speaks with activists and advocates Milan and Sonali about what they did to support one another, even though they lived in two different countries. Hi, this is Anjali Remy with Parivar Bay Area. I am the president and co-founder of America's only trans-centering, trans-led South Asian LGBTQ organization that focuses on economic justice for trans, hijra, non-binary and intersex folks. Uh, joining me today are two of Sital Parivar's COVID warriors who have powerfully stood on the front lines, uh, Sonali and Milin. Welcome. Sonali, please state your name, pronouns, and role um, in community as well as with Parivar Bay Area. Uh, 
Okay. Uh, hello, everyone. My name is Sonali Darvi. I'm a trans woman and my pronouns is she and her. And I work with MIST organization, uh, which runs for LGBTQ community rights and for transgender rights. And I'm from Pune, Maharashtra. Thank you. And Milan? Hi, my name is Milan Datta. I use he, him pronoun. Um, and uh, I am from uh, Assam, which is Northeast India, have been working um, in, in this field since 1918. I, am, I also live in Minneapolis in the US and also started a uh, organization called Out in the Backyard, working for LGBT community in Minneapolis to connect LGBT people to each other and to resources. And I moved to India in 2017, uh, living part-time in India and uh, trying to do uh, work in various fields and specifically in gender and sexuality. Um, then in 2020, during uh, COVID time or 2021, we we connected with Anjali and uh, through Paribar Bay, uh, we are able to uh, distribute uh, food and uh, medical kit to various uh, places in Northeast, in Northeast in general. Hey, Sonali, uh, share us, tell us about your story and why you got into activism. Okay, uh, so coming out story, it was not easy for me uh, to come out to my parents uh, because those days there was no internet, no social media. I came out to my parents at the age of 10 and uh, only the Doordarshan was there. And whatever my school teacher, college teachers used to teach me, only that much knowledge I have. I don't know who I am. Like, I used to do so much of research, like, what's wrong with me? Uh, when I told my parents, like, every day my dad used to beat me so badly. My mom used to beat me so badly. I still remember I used to, uh, every time, I was a very a small child. I used to go to the police station and tell, like, if you beat me, I will put the domestic act of violence against you. You're my parents, you should not beat me. I was such a like, always like that type of a girl, like my rights is my rights. And then my dad took me to the doctor. Every day, like that doctor used to give me the male hormones, injections, uh, Viagra, uh, that I will convert into male. But that didn't happen. But I started bleeding. Whenever I go for pee, I used to start bleeding. from. I used to start bleeding from my ears. I didn't able to sleep also. It was very tough time those days. Then the doctor treatment, although I came from a middle class family, like my dad spent uh, lakhs of rupees on my treatment. Like they always want to change me. Like they always want to be, uh, they always want to be like, my child should be like a boy. Why my child is so feminine? And then uh, the biggest uh, disease of my life was relatives. Every time they used to come and complain, like, see, your child is behaving like this. Your child is so feminine. And uh, then after that, my uh, uh, from relatives, um, they told, like, take her to the tantric people, to the Baba people, those black magic peoples used to do. So there that the tantric uh, was trying to molest me, harass me. That tantric told my father, like, um, uh, keep your child for one day. Next day, your child will be completely fine. He will uh, he will be completely fine. He will behave like a boy. I said, like, I'm already fine. Like, why all these things is happening with me? 
and what's wrong with me then uh, i told my dad better do one thing just give me a poison i'm ready to die but stop all these things i'm not going to take this shit and after that like um, one day my uh, biological mother she died in an accident and uh, i'm the elder one at my home and i have one sister and uh, she was pretty uh, small like she was in second standard and that time like uh, uh, for me being a, a trans woman it was not that easy but what about a cisgender woman because how she is going to face her entire life so i told my dad uh, to get remarry again and uh, my dad remarried again and uh, uh, my stepmother she saw me like i'm so feminine i i'm i'm a trans and my stepmother one day she convinced my uh, dad like sonali jaisi hai usko waise rehne do what she wants she just want to enjoy her femininity now let her enjoy her femininity so i am the real life cinderella cinderella was never behind the prince let the prince follow me she lay, she came in my life like a fairy like uh, i just want to wear a fairy dress and i just want to go for night out i just want to be who i am so i was not the only uh, loneliness the depression anxiety was with, going within me I, uh, so she came in my life and she convinced me like uh, she was there with me and still she is with me and because of her like uh, i started uh, doing the activism i when i go to the college i i got to know like i am not the only one trans like i'm facing so much stigma and discrimination uh, there are many transgenders whose uh, parents does not support or society does not support they don't have the education they don't have the any basic rights so i started uh, getting into activism like whatever i have faced in my life my coming generation my coming youth should not face it out how did covid impact you and what did you do sonali you came to parivar and we have done such extensive work in remote places in red light areas in pune yeah um, tell us more okay so isolation is not new for us since from centuries we have been isolated first the britishers did it then our own society did it and now this corona did it so we got more isolated uh, social distancing from last 37 years i'm facing uh, from the day i born like you you don't belong to our society you should stay away from us so the one hand distance always the society has kept with me the heterosexual society might be facing the social distancing and uh, isolation last from 2 years but since from so many years we are facing all this i started helping uh, transgenders especially because my community uh, people uh, still they are democrats we don't have the ration card aadhar card or any documents and not even any support like family support or society support and uh, it was very difficult for because for bread and butter it matters a lot and uh, my community was facing uh, those in uh, in this pandemic so i started helping them with the grocery rations then many of them are uh, within my community are into sex work and uh, many of them are infected by hiv aids and they was not getting uh, art tablets because art tablets was given to the covid patient and if the circle breaks it is difficult for especially for trans women to save their life 
so i started providing them art medicines many of them uh, was old age transgenders those who are suffering from diabetes blood pressure i started helping them uh, with the medicines melen yeah um most of lots of people from northeast um they are migrant workers they have gone to different cities uh, basically south india and delhi and stuff like that so it has really uh, hit hard in multiple levels uh, specifically those mi- migrant workers they had to return back to the native places and having lost their livelihood so as a um, result they continue to live in a homophobic transphobic environment so which caused lots of mental health issues within the community and then there and there's few cases of suicide cases also and for uh, trans community specifically because they are into begging and prostitution you know income stop you know the income has reduced or stop and because we also often have curfew in fact we have curfew again now um because of the third wave and um, because of curfew and all that their livelihood has stopped and also accessing services like, like healthcare ration also uh, it become a bigger issue so again as i said uh, got connected with um, you and before that also connected with a global grant to give around you know some global grant had given 20 dollars per person i think so we got connected to various trans communities and able to get their datas and then through provider way we were able to give uh, ration and uh, medical kit uh, to most of the state except manipur we have touched most of the state in northeast awesome melen how do you attend pride what do you think the pride movements around the world could do for us south asian trans hetra non-binary folks. Yes. Um, because, as I said, because uh, one of my, you know, close friend commuted suicide recently when I went abroad, I was not here. And what we wanted to immediately start is that we wanted to start a helpline for the community, uh, primarily to support mental health issues. and second we also want a drop in center for the trans community specifically when they go through the transition the center could be a temporary shelter for community members who is going through surgeries because only a uh, place like guwahati uh, has um, facilities and people from corners of northeast where they do not have medical treatment they have to come to guwahati so if you can have that it will be immensely helpful so and along with that what sunali also said we will echo the third will be that um, having more funding so that we can have livelihood project uh, based on the local needs um so that uh, people do not have to migrate people do not have to go for prostitution or begging they can they do not have to leave their villages they may be able to stay at home and start small entrepreneurship uh where they can be uh, independent so that that's what i think uh, most needed uh, for the community in assam or northeast and all over india you would say and a diaspora as a whole right yes that's correct you know uh, your powerful leadership is what we are able to do what we can at parivar first we started with 
like you said, a small effort that grew to all of India and, you know, over 85,000 trans hijra people helped. And now we are focused on livelihood projects to build sustainable economic justice for folks. Um, and we are gonna to continue to do this to make sure we can fight for healthcare equity, vaccine access, and most importantly, to provide and restore the dignity and respect of trans hijra, intersex, non-binary, kwajasara, mupibaina, tirunangal, and jogma, jogti, jogamma communities and mangalmukhi communities all over India and beyond. We are a South Asian organization that's based in California, USA with a global mindset, but with local attachment and connections. With all that said, how do you think we'll get past this pandemic as a community? And what do you look forward to, Sonali? Uh, I hope like, uh, I don't know how long this pandemic will go. Like the waves are coming. We have, I did the vaccination also for transgenders. Uh, as much as possible for me, I can help my community to uh, be in the mainstream of society. Um, but I uh, let's see like how this things goes on. Uh, and how long it will go. But uh, we have to give them a hopes. We have to help them because every life matters. Even drive, trans life also matters a lot. So that's the reason like uh, still we have to help them. Uh, I believe because uh, still let's see like every way Every, uh, you can say that every, uh, uh, this uh, various uh, virus has a uh, three waves. And I hope so, like after this third wave, like the entire corona will go and we can again lead our uh, livelihood like a normal, uh, like back again. Thank you. And Milan, what is your hope for the future? Young leaders and they becoming spokesperson. And we wish that we, during this, pandemic you know through online program you know we are able to we would love to connect with each small areas create this young leaderships and then reach out as much as possible to the rural area yeah thank you so much Milan. in closing what is one word you want to leave everybody with of hope and encouragement sonali one word uh and one word I will say, like, love for all and all for love. Thank you. And Milan, one word. Good. I want to cheat. I want to have two words. I want hope and dream. With hope, we can continue because during pandemic, we, we stop hoping and we stop dreaming because always there's, you know, all this negative news, you know, there's death, there's, you know, suicide, there is, you know, all kind of violence. But we have to be able to hope that, and we have to be able to dream. It, it may be a big dream, but only dream can keep us alive and we can just continue work towards that. E perma coro coro le e corbeia mamaia perma coro coro ao corbeia mamaia coro a tinima 
That was a beautiful tribal song from Sahasra. Trans-existence in this tribal community is seen mostly as non-binary and considered as nature's best gift and showered with affection as a prized member of the community. We can get through this pandemic. We will get through it. We are getting through it because what it takes is taking care of one another. Here to give us last final words and thoughts is the new executive director of New York City Pride, Sandra Perez. My name is Sandra Perez. I also answer to Sandra or Sandy. I am the executive director of NYC Pride, also known as Heritage of Pride. I recently joined the NYC Pride in November of 2021. So I'm very new and still in awe to have joined such an important organization. The past few years of the pandemic have really changed how we live and come together as community. And that unfortunately has impacted all of us from fully gathering. You know, in my um, conversations with a few other pride organizers, volunteers and community partners, you know, um, the through line in all of the conversations has been that we are all very clear that everyone is beyond ready for us to come together and to um, fully activate um, Pride in June. So that is something that I'm very much looking forward to, not only to celebrate what it means to be part of the LGBTQ plus community, but also to lift up our voices and use our platform to amplify the very real issues that we're facing. At NYC Pride, we are already really hard at work at producing a fully live Pride this coming June. Uh, fingers crossed, you know. Equally important to us is that in 2022, um, that we raise and sustain our visibility throughout the year in service to our community. You know, every day that I work at um, NYC Pride, I'm just aware of how many people, you know, I mean, thousands of volunteers, hundreds of volunteer hours, you know, 
by our board members, by staff people, by, you know, allies and community partners um, go into um, the pride movement. So I'm aware of that legacy and how far reaching our impact can and should be. So that's what I'm really excited by. And I hope everybody um, can hold on to that because I think that's what's going to uh, propel us forward. That is what we are going to have to um, harness, you know, to build upon, you know, the foundation, certainly that I've inherited at NYC Pride, but that all um, Pride organizations are busy establishing in their communities. So, so for me, it's really about um, strengthening our efforts, working collaboratively, and um, making sure that, you know, the people that come behind us are advancing our community and, you know, addressing new challenges, not the same old ones. So here's to new challenges. Here's to working collaboratively together and in service of our community in 2022. Thanks a lot. Thank you so much for joining us for our very first episode of 2022. We have more great episodes posted at enterpride.org slash podcast. Share it with your friends, your community, and your family members. We're so grateful for your support. This is Michelle Miao, your host of Interpod, a podcast by Interpride where the world comes together for the LGBTQIA plus community.